Elements, human-centered media storage. Elements.tv, the new centerpiece of your facility, which is so much more than just storage. Hey, everybody, this is Charles Hain for the No Film School podcast. I'm here with editor-in-chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. Filmmaker Kath Tolentino. Hello. And this week we are going to be talking about Kel Supri's Agents Lie. Uh, we're also going to be talking, I love agents, but they do lie. Um, <laughs> that's, that's in their job description. We're going to be talking about Netflix deciding not to buy a, a theater chain. We're going to be talking about Mulan, both its successes and its failures at the box office. We're going to be talking about the brand new diversity standards for the Academy Awards. We've got all that and a bit of tech news out of Sony in a very busy tech news month this week on the No Film School podcast. All right. So our top story this week, uh, headline, agents lie, exclamation point. Um, That is actually not news. Uh, there's an old joke about agents and, and you know, it's, it is part of the job description of agents that they're sometimes untruthful, but this particular one is a little egregious, um, creative artists. So a little bit of backstory. Most of you guys probably remember, we talked about this a lot last year, basically the, um, the writers guild of America, woohoo. Yeah. Guilds and unions, um, didn't, doesn't like, um, packaging, because they feel like packaging unfairly hurts their income as writers, which I agree with. And so they universally were like, all right, we're no, we're going to, we are as a group going to no longer work with agencies that package. And we're going to tell all of our writers to pull, to fire their agents. If their agents work at agencies that package now, amazingly, this has worked. I say amazingly because, you know, I grew up in a time when a lot of strikes and organized actions didn't, um, because of a lot of nefarious reasons, but I feel like we're returning to a time where people are remembering the power you can have. And we're starting to see some of that, uh, come together. So UTA and ICM, two of the big four, I'm old enough that I remember when it was big seven, but there've been mergers and we're down to big four, two of the big four have signed <laughs> WGA's code of conduct. Um, and UTA is famously very artist friendly. ICM is actually kind of an interesting one to have also signed because ICM is sort of famously cutthroat. So, um, but the two most famously cutthroat agencies, William Morris Endeavor and creative artist agency are not signed, have not signed on yet. So what is the big news of the day? The big news of the day is CAA announced they are signing the WGA code of conduct which won't allow them to continue to do packaging. The reason why this is sort of a big deal is because hours later, the WGA announced CAA has not actually agreed to sign our deal. Um, they are proposing some changes to the agreement that we're not going to agree with. So They actually said a- they, they announced that they signed an agreement, which was an agreement they made up. They rewrote the agreement and said, hey, we signed the agreement, and it was this other agreement. WGA said, that's not the agreement. <laughs> that's your fantasy agreement that you signed. And so like what's particularly, I mean, there's a billion things hilarious about this, but like redlining, if, you, if you've not gone through a big contractual thing before, redlining is a, a process that happens. It's like an early stage and like you've negotiated the big level terms and then 
a contract gets drafted and it gets sent back and forth and like one, uh, you know, and redlining is like drawing with a red pen or whatever. And it's this process. I mean, it's also a way in which uh, minority people were not allowed to get mortgages after World War II. So that's one kind of redlining. There's another kind of redlining, which has its own uh, inequalities in it. And so it's a process where lawyers send contracts back and forth. And like, as part of that process, you are regularly like, oh, I don't like provision 21. I'm going to rewrite it. So I'm going to include my own new 21 and cross out the old 21 or whatever. That's a normal part of negotiating. Like that's a thing that happens, right? But usually you go back and forth on that until both lawyers agree. Sometimes you have to get on conference calls to go over deal moment points and try and argue stuff out. There's not, there's no negotiation in the history of mankind where you send over a contract and the other side just like crosses out the terms they don't like and signs it. And it's like, yay, we're in agreement. Like, that's not how this works. And your creative artist agency, you know this. All of you have law degrees or like 90% of agents have law degrees. So it's like such egregious behavior. And it's so clearly a marketing thing. It is so clearly a let's get the news cycle that we've agreed Let's try and do it in the middle of an election season where people have other things to pay attention to. Let's see if we can't trick a bunch of our writers' clients who are not refusing to work with us right now. Let's see if we can't trick them into thinking that they've actually signed. Because, you know, like I'm in a bunch of unions and like it's hard to keep track of like what actions being taken against what if you're not paying a lot of attention. So I think maybe CAA was hoping to trick some writers into thinking that this was real. Um it's ridiculous. It, you know, I, I, uh, I think it's it's funny, obviously, because it's just so par for the course. But it's it's interesting having talked to some people I know who work in business affairs, friends who are in legal departments at some of the bigger studios, have told me that this is actually a pretty common tactic of just sending something back having changed things and saying like, okay, we're all good. Let's go. Um, and it actually works sometimes. Um, so like this, particularly when big talent does it say there's a negotiation, there's always a negotiation for anything you've ever seen. There's countless back and forths about every single person's role, like every person above the line. So sometimes there'll be a star and they'll just, you know, they'll rewrite the contract, their legal team, and they'll send it back to the studio and the studio will look at it and see that there's been a change made that they didn't tell them they made. And that's, they try to slip them over on each other. Uh, it's, it's common practice. And I think what's kind of funny about it, um, like, you know, cliches abound about agents in Hollywood, but this idea that you can like, trick someone into doing something is such a weird way to approach business uh, or life, like on a fundamental level. And I know, you know, I just think it, I think it's worth pulling back and sort of asking ourselves, you know, what we, you know, just like slapping the wrist and be like, ah, we gotcha. You tried to trick us. It doesn't seem like it's enough, does it? It seems like we should, as a culture, not just as an industry, but as a culture say, especially now, because we've, got some people in major power who are looking to push boundaries constantly. There should be more that goes with like trying to trick people by lying to them um, in a contract. Like it just seems like it's egregious, it's wrong, and it shouldn't be tolerated. That's my opinion, at least. Um, I know it's like, this is business, this is how the sausage gets made, but it's just not in good faith, in my opinion. And I don't think we should just accept it as like, 
yeah, that's what happens. You know, we hope we caught you sleeping. This is a classic example of, you know, to a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. If you're a creative artist agency, everyone who works there spends all their time trying to hammer out the best possible deal they can at everything they do. You know what I mean? Like it is that, like that, that joke on 30 rock where, uh, Josh's agent, when his contract is up for a renegotiation is like, I just love negotiating. I want to renegotiate everything. And like, you know, he and Jack are like negotiating what time to meet and what newspaper to read and what the chairs will look like. Cause they just love it. And like, that's first off you have, if you have that personality, you're more likely to become an agent. And if you don't have that personality, you're not going to survive as an agent, but also like you want to focus that energy in the right direction. And what's frustrating for me is this is an example of creative artist agency that like should be focusing that energy at the studio to get every penny they can for their writer clients are instead aiming this laser at their clients instead of at, you know, it's like in a lot of ways I'm going to, this is a, this is a stretched analogy, but we're going to run with it. And somebody, nobody stopped me. Um, They're a little bit like the department of defense. They are so weaponized that they are aiming their weapons, they're negotiating missiles at everyone, including what I think should be friendly fire. I mean, the writers are your clients. You're representing them. You should be making money when they make money. So that you're weaponizing your amazing negotiation skills at your own clients is friendly fire, in my opinion. Like, you should be aiming this at the studios. Like, I want you... I love watch. I love being on some of those calls with lawyers when they're like gorillaing at each other. It's so much fun. And like, I totally respect trying to sneak things into a studio contract. Fine. Do it. Studio legal should be smart enough to catch it and decide about whether or not to let it go. Like that's the game there. But just cause you're so good at this with one thing, aiming it back at your writers just seems so like, like you've out it's you're out of control creative artist agency, you got to rein it in. You got to focus your laser. The other thing is that like, it's, it's one of those interesting thing about labor relations that I think creative artists, everybody always wants to carve out their own special deal. And the beauty of organization is you say, no, there are no special deals. Like the WGA is saying, here's our deal. And we will negotiate with you guys as a group and we'll come up with a group deal, but like, we're not going to, and, but once UTA and ICM signed that locked the deal in like CAA and WME, if you want the deal that UTA and ICM got, you can get it, but you're not going to get some special deal because you held out later. We're not going to reward you for being more difficult. And I love collective yeah. action like that. And I love seeing CAA the power is, of collective action. If you, where if WTA you haven't is been like, there, no. listeners, uh, it folks, really warms my heart. It's like the death star. It's legit. It's a real, there's a powerful feeling in that space. Um, you can feel the fear. <laughs> you can feel the might that they wield. And I'm not surprised they think they deserve special, a special uh, personal version of the contract. Kath, did you have any thoughts? I had something else I wanted to add, but I wanted to hear what you, what you if you had anything to say. I'm just mostly listening and learning from you guys because I'm less familiar with this side of the industry. What's is is CAA's sole rationale for holding out? Is it just purely greed, or is there some reason why they would need the profits from the packaging fees? Like, is I'm curious about their stake in this. 
So it's, I mean, in the writer's opinion and in my neutral opinion, because I'm not in the WGA, it's purely greed. It's there's more money to be made in packaging and coming on and being a producer and taking a producer's cut and getting back end. There's more money in all of that than there is in being an agency. So the WGA is arguing we need in order to do your job as an agency, you can't be doing the other thing. We, you have to be looking out for us as an agent. So it's impossible for you to do both. You're, it's a conflict of interest. And CAA is saying, no, we can package and represent you fairly. We can do both. And the writers are saying we don't believe it. And the reason why CAA is saying we can do both is because the money is too huge. And the thing to remember is, you know, there was a time where there were, you know, my second job in the industry, my first job in the industry was at Creative Artists Agency. But my second job in the industry was at like a little boutique firm. And I remember sitting down and taped to the assistant's desk was like 20 agencies. The top seven were in bold because there were seven big ones. And there were 13 that like mattered that you needed to know. All of these numbers were taped to a screen because you'd be calling them all day. I mean, I'm sure there's some other agencies other than the big four now that matter, but like we're down to four and all of them are in some way, like they're not public, but they have big institutional investors. So they've put themselves in positions where, you know, they went out and they got those venture capital investments on the promise of how much money they could make with packaging and producing and putting those things together. And so now they're stuck. Now they're in this position where they took this venture capital cash as part of their big mergers and acquisitions in order to pay themselves tremendous bonuses. And their business model doesn't support, like a pure agency business model isn't enough to justify the venture capital that they took, in my opinion. I can, I have a, that's a good answer. I have a a different, also I think a good answer, but also kind of a different answer. And I love that question, Kat. Thanks for asking it. Um, So CAA was founded partially by super agent Michael Ovitz, who, (laughs) who, um, and when he came to CAA, one of the big ways he revolutionized being an agent and CAA changed the game was packaging. So CAA has a unique role in the history of packaging in particular. Uh, It was like the pioneer of movie packaging. And, and so was he when he founded it. So they kind of changed the whole landscape and rose quickly to the top uh, in the started in the 70s, 80s, 90s. Then, of course, he famously went to Disney and blah, blah, blah. But um, it's just to me, it's kind of interesting that CAA was a holdout and that CAA would try to change it because it just this is not a town and certainly the agency side of this town is not one where history often matters, but it does feel interesting to me because, you know, as, as, as it goes with super agents like Ovitz, like the lifespan is relatively short. Like you, you burn out quick and you move on to something else. Not that he's not doing great wherever he is right now, but you don't last at the top of an agency for for too long. Um, and I think that it's interesting that the agency today, for whatever reason, might still reflect that belief system or those values. It's just weird things to all to associate together. But I'm wondering aloud, I guess, if the history of CAA and packaging has something to do with CAA's reluctance to be one of the ones to help bring an end to it. It's their legacy. Um, I'm just going to say, I think also the dirty little secret maybe not so secret for everyone to know is that what you really need here is you need a lawyer and you need a manager. You really don't need an agent unless you're playing for the big time. 
like the real big time because your lawyer is going to protect you. And that's the person you absolutely want. And you don't want your legal expertise necessarily coming from your agent. Why? Well, like as Charles, as you just so perfectly pointed out, there's a lot of friendly fire and they're not, they're only interested in you in as much as you're going to make them a lot of money, not even just a little bit of money. So if you go to a big agency, like if you're ever repped or pocketed, hip pocketed by a big agency, the chances that they're going to care about you very much are very slim unless you're making tons of money for them. Um, but a manager is sort of like a corner man or woman, and they're going to be with you, helping you develop things. That's the way an agent sort of used to be, used to like 20, 30, 40 years ago. And a lawyer who's really in it with you and on your side is the one who's actually going to read all this stuff and make sure that people aren't slipping things in or tricking you or taking advantage. Like, And you want that person to be your person. You don't want it to be somebody who comes through the agency or through anybody else involved. So that would be like my PSA is like, don't worry so much about agencies. It's really feels good as an up and coming creative to be hip pocketed by a big one or to take these meetings. I've been there. It's a great feeling, but it's not going to mean a whole lot as much as having a manager who's actually guiding you correctly and a lawyer who is, is yours and is really working for you and protecting you. Such great advice. I'm glad. Lawyers, <laughs> lawyers rule. Yeah, All you right. need good players. Moving on to our next topic of the week, Netflix has announced they're not going to buy a movie ch- theater chain. Now, this is a little bit like what, like I, I, I haven't had to come out and say I'm not going to buy a movie theater chain, right? <laughs> like it's so it's it's a little bit like you know why did you have to say you're not going to buy a movie theater chain? And the reason why is because there's been a tremendous amount of rumors going around for a while that um, one of the streamers, Netflix, Amazon, uh, or Apple, will come in and come to the rescue of one of the major movie theater chains um, because all of the movie theater chains have had such a terrible, terrible year because of COVID. And at least in America, the bailout system has has been um, a shit show. And most, you know, all of them are struggling. All of the movie theater chains are struggling and we all, we all would like to be back in them as soon as we can, but we're not there yet. And so Netflix has come out as, as firmly saying they're not going to buy a theater chain. And we wanted to talk about that a little bit because it's sort of interesting uh, as it's interesting as we think about what the future of theatrical is. And, you know, I know we talked about this, God, it might have been two years ago or it might have been a month ago. COVID's weird. Um, or when, I think we talked about it a lot, but yeah, <laughs> it weaves its when way Amazon, When Amazon was negotiating for a long-term lease on the Paris here in New York was whether or not, you know, I mean, I personally would, I've accepted, I would really like it if one of the streamers would prop up one of the major chains. I think it would be interesting. The problem is, uh, especially now that the Paramount decrees uh, got let go of last year uh, and a refresher on the Paramount decrees that they were the ni- late 1940s decrees that dictated that a uh, creator of content could not also own the distribution platform. And then one, uh, you know, last year that a department of the treasury got rid of the Paramount decrees, which is, you know, within a week, Amazon had signed their long-term lease on the Paris theater. And so we're sort of looking at this landscape where like for the first time in a long time, what's interesting is no one, not a single person. This is the first time the thoughts even crossed my mind. No one was like, 
will a studio buy a theater chain? Like, because studios don't have that kind of money anymore. Um, and it doesn't make any sense as a business model for them. But we all immediately thought, will a streamer buy a business uh, theater chain? Because they usually have the capital to do it. And there's some arguments for why they might want to consider it. But then it becomes really complicated. Like, you know, in a lot of the smaller markets, there is only one theater or two theaters. And it might be from the same chain. So all of a sudden, if Amazon bought AMC and you could only watch Amazon Originals at AMC, that would be very weird. So it's a complicated thing. It's interesting to see Netflix bow out um, of the race sort of publicly. Um, So I think that is a really interesting thing. We have not yet heard anything definite from Amazon and Apple. Um, So it'll be interesting to see how all, all of that works and it's going to be really interesting to see if there's a way streamers can help theaters survive um and i don't know what that would look like but i know that i want the next 50 years of my life to be watching movies in theaters and if that's going to happen theaters need to survive somehow and streaming revenue needs to somehow somehow like streamers have the cash and it would be nice if we could figure out how they can Yeah, I thought this was interesting because uh, Netflix is making a very clear statement. They're like, we are extremely powerful right now and we are not interested in propping up this thing that feels like, I mean, this is me reading between the lines here, but it felt like it was saying we're not interested in propping up this thing that feels like the past. We're interested in beating our competitors at what they do. They specifically kept citing beating Disney at animation, which is like saying, you know, I want to beat Michael Jordan one-on-one or something. And it's, and it's, it's always like saying, I want to bring Babe Ruth back from the dead and strike him out. Cause like Disney's dominated family animation for a hundred years. So it's, or almost, but it's, it's, uh, they're, they're like eyes on the prize. Basically. They don't want to meddle in something that is just like the past. It just feels like, although my, my metaphor has us resurrecting the past. So that's, that's confusing. I think particularly since they were the game changer that decimated uh, physical theater. Exactly, yes. They're the ones that changed the whole industry. And so, yeah, like you said, it's like, well, do they want to go back and save this thing that they destroyed? It's a good question because time will tell, um, you know, how much we really rely on that model anymore, how much consumers really want to see movies in theaters. I know I personally do. And one of the things that excites me about the possibility of Netflix owning a theater chain is that um, the idea that it, you know, they because they have so much capital, they could bring back films that we haven't seen in a while. Some of those gems on Netflix that I'm like, oh wow, I haven't seen this movie in you know 20 years or whatever, or like, oh, this is a classic. Um, I don't know how much I know how popular that would be, but that seems pretty cool. That being said, since Netflix is focusing so much of their energy on developing original content, I don't know how realistic that future is either, you know? Yeah. I mean, the, it's funny when you say that they're the thing they destroyed resurrecting it, it was kind of like when we talked about this possibility before I brought up that Amazon has like brick and mortar bookstores now like so wild right and they've like it's almost like they're rubbing everyone's face in it like they salted the earth but then they planted a farm there anyway somehow Mm -hmm. and it's like i i could sort of see that's why some of us thought like yeah netflix is gonna do this they're gonna dance on its grave but i on the other hand it makes total sense to me that netflix is I, i think from a business standpoint so within the industry people 
don't love Netflix. Like it, like they're kind of seen as that of that annoying upstart by a lot of the other majors studios, and they're frustrated by their ascent, and they spend a ton, and they're over leveraged certainly. So when you put it all together, it does sort of make sense that Netflix, who is Netflix, is like breaking boundaries. They're a pioneer, and it makes sense that blazing trails all that and it makes sense to me that other people at kind of the old guard are like oh look at this look at this guy netflix over here doing all this stuff but i i feel like netflix's priorities make a lot of sense they're like no no disney plus is like on the move and we want to be better at that we want to be the best at our thing we don't want to mess around with something that that's like a tough business model that doesn't work we're not like uh yeah, like think about like Amazon and Apple. They're they're in positions, I think, corporate wise, where they can really invest heavily in something that's not going to make them money. Just to see, like you know, Apple started Apple TV or Apple Plus, and it's like uh, they're just like, let's just see, we can lose money for five years and it won't matter because we sell so many phones. Mm-hmm. But Netflix is like, we sell, we're still at the we sell phones start thing. Like we make streaming content. Like we got to be better at that. Always, and I think that makes sense, you know? Welcome to the future of remote editing. Imagine being a thousand kilometers away from your post-production suite. With Elements Satellite, you can easily access your editing workstation remotely with extreme responsiveness, unmatched frame rate, and ultimate security. Due to the immense demand for high bandwidth and low latency, Video production is often too challenging for traditional remote access tools. Elements Satellite is the first remote access solution purpose built for the media entertainment industry. Now, editing can be done with superb quality from anywhere in the world without any restrictions. Arrange your free trial at elements.tv satellite today. So speaking of streaming content, Mulan just launched on Disney Plus, which is the competitor that Netflix is going for and had a dramatically huge domestic opening in North America, but then by the uh, but then suffered in China because of a controversy over shooting locations. So it was sort of really interesting. I mean, so a little bit of background, Mulan was a very popular animated film of the late 90s. It was remade as a live action film by director Nick Nikki Caro, famous for The Whale Rider and other films. And um, apparently, uh, it was originally supposed to be a theatrical release. So Disney Plus is a subscription streaming application that you pay a monthly fee for. If you pay that monthly fee, you could then pay an additional $30 to add Mulan, which caused like a lot of backlash. Like a lot of people I was seeing were like paying extra to add, like, I can only get it if I'm a subscriber, but my subscription fee, I still have to pay $30. But yet it was still apparently 15% of all titles streamed, uh, uh, according to streaming guide, real good. Um, by comparison, Hamilton, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago, only hit 9% and Bill and Ted had a 5%, which is, you know, I love Bill and Ted. I'm bummed that, that uh, Mulan destroyed him so thoroughly. Uh, although maybe the movie's good. I haven't seen the movie yet. Um, and maybe Bill and Ted isn't, I, I haven't seen any of those things, but what's interesting to me is also that it was a huge 
thing in America, but actually tanked in China because there was a large boycott movement because um, in the credits, they thanked 10 different propaganda ministries for their help in working on the film. And it caused a huge backlash among a wide variety of people that started on social media specifically for working with the um, uh, propaganda ministry, I think from Tianjin, um, which is near where they are interning um, Uyghur Muslims. And so even what's especially strange about all of this is that all of that work with the propaganda ministries was apparently over background plates all principal photography was actually in New Zealand, but they wanted background plates from China and they had to work with the propaganda ministries for the background plates. I thought the boycott also had to do though with the lead actress tweeting something, defending, defending cops in Hong Kong. Is that right? I, I think that was controversial. I, I don't know if that was related to the boycott. The only article I read about the boycott was specifically about, uh, uh, Uyghur internment, but it, I'm sure that didn't help. I'm sure that wasn't like, yeah. I'm, I'm sure that was a, a, a big deal as well. Well, I feel like there are multiple reasons for boycott. Definitely in my social media circles, it had to do with this lead actress's tweet. That being said, I think another, this is all hearsay, but another reason why I heard it was not such a, a critical success or commercial success in China is that to Chinese audiences, it felt a lot like Western folks trying to make a Chinese film unsuccessfully, um, which totally makes sense because it is like mainly for an American audience and is based on a story that was for an American audience. Um, but the, the uh, sort of response that I saw in a lot of my social media circles was check out these Chinese remakes of Mulan that have been released in the past few years that are significantly better. Um, and this is, I haven't seen it myself yet. Uh, but knowing the other Disney live action remakes, I'm not totally surprised that this one hasn't been received that well. Um, cause I think they're trying to do a lot of things, you know, they're trying to balance like they want, yeah, they want it to be culturally relevant and really exciting and new, but at the same time, it's based on this animated kids movie from like 1986. But I, I am, you know, there's a lot of things going on here. The thing that I don't, I don't know a lot about the what's happening with the Chinese box office for Mulan and and the reasoning behind its dip. Or, but this, these these theories and reasons all sound right to me. I'm still fascinated by the fact that. So we talked about on this podcast in the past that this was sort of a um, gambit to do this kind of premiere. Or sorry, what 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 would we call it? The um, the, the a price point for you to buy a streaming content, a piece of content that's streaming on a platform you already subscribe to. So like an additional, you know, pay per watch, whatever you want to call it. I don't know what the term's going to be. Um, but it was sort of a question of like, is that going to work? Like, are people going to do it? And we, we sort of mused about it on the podcast. And I think in general, in the industry, people were wondering... And it seems like the answer was obviously yes, people are definitely going to do it. Um, and we also talked about, I think, Charles, you made the point that Disney has all these subs and it's like they probably realize, well, we already have all the subs that are going to 
watch Mulan. We need more. <laughs> like with Hamilton, it's like they, they arguably expanded their tent by just having it on there. But with with Mulan, they were like, ah, the Mulan watchers are probably already subscribing. Let's just like charge them a little money. And it worked. And that to me, that's the big story because that's like, even when the pandemic, if and when things go back to some version of normal, theaters are open. This is why it makes sense for like Netflix going back to the other story and like not to worry about theaters because if you can charge for a for a weekend release and you can make all that money like why would you like why move back into the theater model it just doesn't make sense and I know it's 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 cinephile sacrilege but I just don't like I think that this pandemic was the death blow to the theatrical experience as we knew it I think it'll exist in a different way but it just doesn't make sense to me. Like if everybody's willing to pay when they already have the subscription, that says a lot. But that's only because it's our only option. Like most people that I know would not step foot into a theater right now solely because of the health risk. And if in a year or two's time, everyone's vaccinated and, you know, we don't have another pandemic threatening the world, I would totally rather see this movie in a theater. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, there's two things, right? There's the what would I rather. There's three things. There's the what do the people I know, what would they rather. But then there's like, what's the mass of people? What's the direction things are flowing? Like, I would rather go see a movie in a theater. When I had the chance with Irishman to see it either way, I picked the theater, even though it was really long. Uh, I, I, And most people I know, like, like us, like our community, like we're going to want the theater. But I think that it's going to become more and more common that a family of five will opt to stream the movie at home for one price of $30 for that weekend rather than pay for five tickets. And I, think, I was going to say think, family is the key there. Yeah. Is once, you have, once you have that many tickets and once you're thinking about that many car seats – and once you're thinking about that many sneezes, because in a children's movie, half of the <laughs> audience is going to have a cold, you know, at least in an adult movie, like only a third of the audience is going to have some sort of cold. Once you add all that together. But the big news here for me is that, yes, a pandemic, Kath, you're totally right. This is only something you get away with in a pandemic, except I think Disney's going to keep getting away with this after a pandemic's over for kids. I just can't believe it's $30. I can't believe it's a subscription fee and $30. And it works. You mean you thought it would like be that's less? A, yeah. I mean, a yeah. subscription fee in $10. It's mm-hmm. Disney. <laughs> They're always – they've got everybody – they have everybody that they have locked in. Like there's a – they can charge so much. When was the last time you went to Disneyland? I mean, I know it wasn't in the last eight months. But they can keep upping that ticket price, and they do. And people don't ever stop. To hesitate so, and like look at what it caught. They're just like, okay, that's what it is now. Sure. <laughs> like that's how Disney works. So I've never been to Disneyland and I was oh, on man. set once and I mentioned that to the first AD and the first AD looked at me like I was insane. And I was like, what? And, and the first AD was like, I go every year. And I was like, really? And then people like, get married we, there, we man. It's break. wild. We all took a break and the first AD asked everyone on the crew like, hey, how often do you guys go? Everyone went at least once a year. Like half the crew had yearly pat. I was like, everyone goes all the time and they were like yeah and i was like i've just never been 
Like, I had, <laughs> like it was the weirdest. It was that weird. It was like almost a Truman Show moment of being like, wait a minute, there's this thing that all of you constantly do. And I just had no idea. It was really so funny. bizarre to me. So well, yeah, I, I, I have no idea how much they charge. Is it like $80 to go? It's like, no. like 100. <laughs> it's a lot more than that. And it's, it's like, what? It's, it's yet. Yeah, it's too much. It used to be like, yeah, it's it, and it's constantly going up. It's like such a moving target. But the but the crazy thing is like that there, and, and that's only the get in fee. Like people never stop spending money once they're in there. But the but all that aside, like Disney being like this, what it is uh, aside, I think that you're right. There are definitely going to be some movies that that are released in theaters. But what I think we're talking about now is that some sections of audiences will be, and this could be a great thing for filmmakers. So if you're listening to this segment and you're thinking about it, like, wow, we're really just talking about what it's like to be in an audience. I think that this could have a lot to do with how it affects independent filmmaking, because there may be a way in which the theatrical model becomes one that makes more sense for a littler indie movies or festival movies or that track of filmmaking. And it makes less and less sense for the four quadrant, you know, family movie because, mm-hmm. because that, and that could be great. Cause that could like actually like hit the sweet spot for everybody. I'm not saying that that's what I'm predicting. I'm just saying I could see that future because who loves the theaters people sort of in, in this community, in the filmmaking community, typically, um, or adults who are interested in the kinds of movies that maybe, or date night, but all those people are the ones who want to see what they want to see. Like a movie like her maybe, or a movie like, um, Palm Springs, maybe, or I don't know what, where her came from, but just it, those are the kinds of movies, right? Or Wes Anderson or, and so it might make sense that those movies and the filmmakers who are trying to make those movies hit some version of theatrical as well as eventually streaming where Mulan actually makes sense to just like not do, maybe do theatrical, but like really the people who are going to want it are going to prefer it on a streaming platform. I, we could see a flip there. I just, I'd be interested to know what you guys think, but I think it's possible. I really like that prediction. I think that that makes a lot of sense. I don't think that theaters are going to die. And I, I, the reason why I think it's still too early to tell like whether streaming is going to take over as a result of the pandemic is because I think um, I, I venture to guess that a lot of people right now are really missing community and that once yeah. this is over, we'll need to be in public spaces with each other. Like we're all dying for that. Um, and so I feel like it's theaters are going to have to stick around because whether it's like, I don't know, whether it's open air theaters or closed air theaters, people want to be able to gather. It's in our nature, you know. All right, moving on to our last headline. We have a four headline week on the podcast this week. This is a big one. We had to talk about it. The Academy Awards uh have announced diversity standards to be eligible for best picture which is unexpected i wasn't expecting this i don't know if anybody else was expecting this um i'm sure they are controversial what is most interesting about them and i think is a really smart strategy is they have four sort of i mean what are you going to say four standards and you just have to meet two of them so it's not that you have to win on all fronts, but you know uh, there are four standards. So there's one about casting. There's one about production and marketing jobs. Um, there are 
Uh, there's one about actors in secondary and minor roles. So, uh, you know, there's a variety of different standards, but you only have to meet two, which is good because, you know, like, let's say that your movie is about a specific, um, you know, like if you're adapting Hamlet, although you should be able to do an adaptation of Hamlet with diverse actors. And I actually saw a wonderful uh, Othello with Patrick Stewart as Othello and an otherwise all black cast. So like, yeah, I mean, but there are times where, the movie is like where it might not make sense for every individual movie to be diverse in cast, but then you could still be diverse in crew. You could still be diverse in supporting cast. You could still be diverse in other ways. Um, and so I thought that was a really interesting thing. There is one of the criteria is audience development, which is sort of an interesting one. Um, and I think it's going to be maybe, uh, harder to track audience development and uh, it'll be interesting to see how that goes. Uh, it'll actually, audience development actually has to do with the studio or film company having senior executives from underrepresented groups, which I think is a really good thing um, and will hopefully lead to more interesting projects. Um, I have not actually, I saw this go up and I was like, Ooh, there's going to be some discussion of this in my social media universe or among my friends and then nothing. So maybe other people have takes or have gotten involved in arguments about it, but everything seems reasonable. And I, and it sort of like came and went in my world. Yeah. I mean, I saw, so the comments on it, on the no film school post about it, you know, in the common threads and the Facebook posts, uh, there's, you know, plenty of argument as one would expect. Um, but in the community, I'm the communities I'm a part of, I think there's been this kind of general, my sense is that there has been a general sort of an eye roll at the idea that this is, uh, really an effective measure. Um, could be something so minimal. Like, I mean, the joke is like, you'll give an associate producer credit to somebody who qualifies for like one of these things and they will not necessarily be super involved. And then you can still invest picture, but also check off the box. Like there are, it's kind of like, it's, it's like baby steps are better than no steps. And I celebrate this, this and the spirit behind it. But I think for me and what I've heard echoed elsewhere is that it doesn't feel like it's a big step. Um, and uh, it feels like it's something people will find quick workarounds to knowing the way things go. But I love the spirit of it. I support the idea of it. Um, and I, I, you know, I've heard certainly plenty of the, like, it's supposed to be a meritocracy and why can't just the best movie win it and all that. And that you're going to hear that, like, that's going to come with this territory, of course, whether you agree with it or not. I personally don't agree with it. Um, I don't think it's a meritocracy, <laughs> but, uh, no, I, I think that not a meritocracy. <laughs> I'm not sure what is, but, uh, maybe there exists one in Plato's utopia. Um, but I, I definitely don't see the industry as one and I don't see this as being the, I've just, I'm, I'm aware of so much just general in my life and my, you know, the, the path I've walked, there's been so much, um, nepotism alone that it's, that it's just to me, the idea that it's the best movie winning or the best person getting the job ever seems absurd. It's definitely not. 
um, 99% of the time in my observation. So that the pursuit of that is like, it's noble to say, oh, it would be great if it was, but there's just so many reasons why it's not, and it's not going to be. Um, and something like this is a great idea in my opinion, but I just, I kind of look at it wishing that it was more, um, because, and I'll stop ranting after this, but because I just, I'm not a big Oscar awards ceremony person. So I don't particularly care the only thing that might make it more interesting to me if it had a harder line about diversity and about um, uh, different kinds of stories from different kinds of people. Otherwise, it's just kind of like, oh, okay, it's like, you know, as, as Charles loves to say, the motor trend, this G and Associates motor trend powertrain awards, oh, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it's just yeah. like, I don't, I don't go in for it. That's not my thing. But uh, if they, if they made it more about celebrating different kinds of like bringing attention to different kinds of people, different kinds of stories. Well, then I might actually perk up and say, Oh, this is a good thing. It's not just a waste of time. And mm. grumpy man rant. It's funny. Yeah. You know, George, as you're talking, I, I think I feel similarly in that, like I wasn't expecting them to do anything like this. And then now that they have, I'm sort of like, Oh, I wish it had been more. Um, but that being said, I hope that it's the beginning of a number of different major players in our industry taking a stand about the need for meaningful diversity. I mean, you look at these numbers and it's like, oh, at least 30% of all actors in secondary roles must come from two of the following underrepresented groups. Uh, some of it just feels a little like... It's thirty. I think it's funny that it's something like thirty percent, and that just to me that doesn't mean it's not just going to be like a comic relief black guy, which is yeah. like that's fine. But it's just like, can we hold ourselves to a slightly higher standard, please? Like, can we start if we're going to make rules, and and we should make rules like this for the Oscars because, like I said, the Oscars are inherently silly and subjective. So, like, why can't we make them like you? Like, there has to be a movie that has a non-white male lead like it, it nominated or like i don't know how to make the rules i'm not going to rewrite this rule book right now while we're recording the podcast but i just agree <laughs> i just don't think that it's enough but i love that it's an effort i i i agree that i love that it's an effort i the more we talk about it the more i agree with kath that it just feels like it doesn't go very far at all like all of the categories are arbitrary, right? We now have best sound, <laughs> even though sound editing is wildly different than sound mixing. We still don't have color grading, which should be an Academy Award. Like, all of it's arbitrary. Also, I mean, you could make a very strong argument that having separate male and female acting categories is is patently ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Yes, like, yeah. Like, like really, mm -hmm. that's just affirmative action for the men because otherwise they would lose to Meryl Streep every year. So it's, like, it's <laughs> just ridiculous. So it's one of those things of like, well, I mean, why, why don't we have like, best female director? Doesn't it beg the question? Like, especially now that we talk about gender and non-binary more and more, and we're looking, we're yeah. becoming more fluid as a society, which is a good thing about that definition. Like, why do we have to have the, the director be non-gendered? Like, best why should there be Best male colorist and best female colorist every year. <laughs> uh, Jill Bogdanovich and Natasha Ickley would win a lot. Um, it will be a 12-hour ceremony. <laughs> so it, the whole thing, but then the the other thing about these rules is they seem so wishy washy that it's mm -hmm. the kind of thing that the kind of people who would do who like there are a whole lot of people who are taking stock and looking at the scripts and projects they've been delving and and they're like really taking what's happening right now to heart and they're like oh 
there are things I can learn and other stories I can try and tell. And those kind of people are going through that process anyway. And like, this is not going to be incentive for them to change. And then there's people who skirt every rule they possibly can and are going to find all of the ways to skirt all of these rules, however they can and do the bare minimum. And so it's just like one of these things where I'm like, I get it. I'm excited. Like, I'm glad you did it. I don't think you shouldn't have done it, but it does seem like, you know, I don't know. It would be really awesome to see some sort of bigger radical rethink of, of what the Oscars can be. Yeah. Uh, I also feel like one of the main reasons why hashtag Oscars so white is because the Academy is so white and the people that are voting for best picture and that are, nominating best picture are predominantly older white men. And so I think that some of the details in this, uh, in these, you know, new rules that they're laying out are interesting. Like you said, Charles representation in marketing, publicity and distribution, because it is sort of a matter of getting the gatekeepers, the community of gatekeepers to be more diverse in order to recognize the great work that's already being made. That's already, you know, coming from a place of meaningful diversity um, uh, rather than changing, you know, making, making more films meet these sorts of quotas. I think the gatekeepers are the ones that need to kind of, those communities need to be opened up more in order to create real change. Absolutely. All right. With that, we have a little bit of tech news before we wrap it up. It's a little, it's a little bit of tech news for a little tiny little itty bitty camera. So uh, Sony has come out with the A7C. What? So you guys have mostly uh, been familiar with the A7S line. It's been revolutionary. Um, It's actually always been very small already. So like, you know, there's all these jokes about Canon shooters going back and forth with Sony and feeling like they're holding a toy camera with Sony. So the Sony A7S cameras were already really small. But we're in this weird war this year where everyone's trying to come out with the smallest cinema style camera. And I mean, it's a stills camera that does really nice video. And so uh, Panasonic just came out with the S5, which is a tiny, tiny little body, but it's still a full frame mirrorless camera that shoots nice video. And Sony just came out with the A7C. So like now we have the Panasonic S5, the Sony, F- the Sigma FP, and now the Sony A7C. Um, all coming in under $2,000, all small. Um, the Sony A7C does 60 frames per second in 4K or 120 frames per second in 1080. So it's got the slow-mo you're looking for, and it's got that Sony big sensor, full frame uh, image quality you are looking for. And it's kind of nuts that uh, full frame mirrorless is getting so competitive at small bodies. Like, it's great because the lenses are getting bigger and bigger. So it's really nice to have a small body behind it. And now you mount to the lens a lot of the time when you can, but it's sort of a, that is the little bit of tech news for the, the little bit of camera at the end of the podcast. Do you have any quick, like pros and cons of the camera you could like throw out to us or just like what, you know, what's exciting about it? Or, sure. I mean, you know, you're going to, uh, what's exciting about it is just small size. Like the small size is the excitement. It is the, you're going to be able to fit it in smaller gimbals. You're going to be able to fit it in smaller cages. It's going to weigh less. If you want to rig it on a wall, it's going to be smaller. The physical smallness is going to be exciting. And for a lot of filmmakers, 
you're losing a lot of your processing power. So, you know, like the A7S three has this cool new gimbal stabilization feature, which is really great. You're, uh, you're losing out, which we have an article about on the site, nofilmschool.com. You're losing out on that in the smaller camera, I believe. Um, you're losing out on, you, you know, like the A7S three does 4k 120 frames per second, 4k 120 frames per second is nuts. And you know, $3,400 camera can do that. It's crazy good. You know, a year ago, that wasn't something we expected for under $10,000. You're not going to have 4K 120 frame per second out of the A7C. If you want 120, you're going to have to bump down to 1080. Um, You know, the color reproduction is not going to be quite as robust. You're losing a couple of your more robust recording formats. But for a certain kind of filmmaker making certain kind of projects, the low light's going to be worth it. If I was going out and I was shooting a low-budget documentary and I wanted to buy a camera and I could only afford something under 2000 if I had a lot of low-light work, I'd really look at the A7C because Sony's so good in low-light. And, you know, the budget, the body size is going to be really good for long handheld dock sessions. You know, not that the A7S three is a very big body, but this is even smaller, which is nuts. So that has been the No Film School podcast, the four, the four headline No Film School podcast, the first time we've ever done that. So uh, I'm on the Twitter and the Instagram at Charles Hain. I just read my website, charleshain.com, that has less on it than before. I decided to minimalist out with the redo. And as always, you can check out my web series. I'll stop plugging it soon, but not quite yet at saltypirate.tv. So I am a writer, director, producer. You can see some of my work at katherinetolentino.com. My short film, Parachute, is out on the festival circuit right now. We'll be playing at the Montana International Film Festival this weekend. Um, Actually, there's an in-person screening. So if you live in Billings, check it out. Um, And I also run a production company called Border Woman Pictures. You can find that on Instagram at borderwoman.pictures. And I'm George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School. You can learn more about all these stories and a whole lot of other stuff at nofilmschool.com. Follow us on Facebook. Follow us or like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. One day I'll get all that right. Uh, Be sure to like, rate, subscribe to the podcast. Leave a comment. Send us an email at ask at nofilmschool.com or editor at nofilmschool.com. Let us know how we're doing. Ask us any questions any comments, anything on your mind. And I want to direct your attention to another podcast episode we have. It's an interview I did with Walter Murch, legendary editor, sound mixer, sound designer. It is live on the website right now. It is live on Megaphone or wherever you get your podcasts. And I was super intimidated. I've read the books the man wrote, as well as the books with people talking to the man. He's a giant. His influence is massive. And he's a renaissance man and an intellectual and fascinating to listen to. And I was out of my element. I did my best, though. And I hope you all can listen to it and enjoy it. He gets into some really interesting stuff about his science of editing and stuff. So check that out. Thanks so much for listening.